Welcome to the FMCG podcast. Make sure you're following us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave us a five-star review. It really helps us out. Enjoy the show. Hi, good morning. My name is Rich and we're Consumer Up and we focus on consumer recruitment across the UK and the US and the world, in fact. And this is the FMCG podcast. And today we are talking with Giles, who is from the Holmwood House Group. And this is going to be a great podcast we're going to be hearing all about Jazz's insights into beer, brewing, brands, and also his advice on career development within FMCG marketing. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Giles. It's great to have you. And uh, yeah, we worked together before on a few projects, and it's really good to kind of reconnect on this and do a podcast together. So could you just give us a quick insight and intro into you, your career, and also what you're doing over there at Oldwood House? Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Rich. Uh, I'm currently the what's known as the drinks marketing manager at Horn and Woodhouse. So I look after all the drinks brands uh, that we make. Um, I've been there almost two years. Uh, prior to that, I was at uh, Jägermeister UK for almost six years. Um, so some decent sort of BWS uh, experience, albeit with a slightly different product and a slightly different target demographic. Um, and before that, I spent a lot of my time actually more on the insight side of things with agencies. So um, I spent seven and a bit years at Dunhumby and what is now Amia, working with Clubcard and Nectar. Um, and I think what that really did was cement for me the power of data, insight, and really listening and understanding your consumer. Yeah. Um, so obviously a bit of a pivot midway through my career with that sort of base into um, you know, actually utilize that insight for uh, marketing strategy and activation. Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a change at, at that point, but um, I think it's, it's put me in really good stead for what I do now. And, and am I right thinking that at Hollywood House, you're looking after the sort of the total drinks brand portfolio, then aren't you? Like kind of everything all together. Yeah, absolutely. So we now have uh, effectively two brands. So All in Woodhouse is the parent yeah. company and the hospitality company. So we have 56 managed houses and uh, about 111 tenanted pubs across the south. Um, but we've had Badger as a beer brand since, well, for 246 years. Um, and we also this year have launched our new craft beer brand, Outland. Um T-shirt, and um, yeah, you got to have the T-shirt, which <laughs> um, is is obviously a big departure for for the business. Um, but again, it's been done for very strong, you know, commercial and consumer-led reasons. Yeah, that's, that's really really interesting. What what was the kind of um, obviously talking about like a new shop demographic and sort of touched on before your background in in insight and listening to shop yeah. and consumer. What, where did the kind of like insight or initial spark come from to to look at creating this new brand and sort of pivoting into a i guess a different um drinking occasion or a different sort of uh yeah sort of taste and palette there yeah it's well actually it was before i arrived because as is the the way these days i had to do a um a presentation for my sort of second third interviews mm-hmm. it were and it's it's a difficult one to to pitch the tone of those things, but I thought I'd decide, decided to be quite punchy with it because I could see, you know, these these problems uh, with the brand, with the the range of the portfolio and how disparate it was, and and all sorts of other things. So, uh, luckily, that struck the right note and didn't get me kicked out um, of the interview. And so, as soon as I started, or a couple of months after, we ran a a brand audit with um, um, 
a, a small insight agency to understand uh, how our consumers see the brand, but also more importantly, how the consumers of the rest of the ale category see our brand. Uh, that was run alongside a really big piece of insight with the IGD, uh, which was broader and again, looked at the, the bigger category uh, shoppers from across um, all sort of beer subcategories um, and putting the two together, there was some some, some key commonalities. Uh, and I think a lot of the problems that, that we had are probably similar for a lot of other uh, uh, PBA, sorry, premium bottled ale brands uh, in the off trade. Yeah. The, you know, it's, it's a category that's struggling a little bit. Um, and the, the reasons for that really are came out of that research. And then we've spent the last sort of year or so reworking our brands to try and, and, and meet those challenges and be more relevant to a broader suite of beer drinkers. That's very interesting. And I'm all right thinking as well, the, the kind of core brands as well that people probably know, Hollywood House for historically in the off trade, like Firstly Ferret, et cetera, they've been rebranded as well, haven't they? So you've done like a new brand concept developed without them, but then there's also been like a rebranded at the, the core range. So how did you go about juggling those two projects that losing your centre point, your centre of gravity? Because it's, it's, it's a hard ask that, isn't it? It's a lot to kind of get your head around. Yeah, I think we're, we're a very small team. Um, and by team, there's two of us in drinks marketing and we now look after these two brands. And, and that's obviously a challenge from a sort of time perspective. But it also means that there's just me, to some degree, with with what I've seen, my views, and, and how I can take them through. Now, um, yeah. as long as we're happy that they're correct, it, it prevents sort of things getting massively filtered down. That's not to say, obviously, that I don't work with the management committee, the brewing team, um, the hospitality team, everyone. Um, but I guess there is kind of a, a single point that can could really hold on to to what we took out of those um, uh, those pieces of insight. And also, I make sure I was referred back to them. I, I, I bore people by going back to, all my presentations start with, what were we trying to do and why were we trying to do it? So that they remember that. And then what have we done? And that then we can show how what we've done answers those questions. And particularly with something like a brand refresh, which can be, um, sensitive, particularly with a historic brand, yeah, yeah. Um, it's important because that takes it away from being opinion-based, I like that design, I don't like that design, to does this design meet the criteria that are outlined by these pieces of insight that we know will appeal more to our consumer base? And by doing that, again, you, try, you can take some of the emotion out of it. Um, so so that that was really important. And, it, and that if you think back to the, the Dunhumby Amia piece, you know, rely on your data, your insight, because they are facts. Um, effectively, we know, you know, statistics, lies down, statistics, etc. But they're more facts than you just saying, I don't like that design or that's not for me. Um, and whether it's for you or not, in many ways, is irrelevant. You're not the consumer. I'm not the consumer. Even if I buy these products, I'm not the consumer because I work for the brand. And so yeah, it's my view yeah. is, is, is tainted. You know, I... I have this sort of theory that I always try and be the stupidest person in the room. Now, some of my colleagues would say I do that too well. So that's but, not hard in my office for me. <laughs> but but what it means is that when I'm looking at something, you know, I try and erase all of my brand knowledge and look at it from the perspective of a tired commuter 
stood on a tube platform seeing a poster? What does it mean to them if they've never heard of our brand, never heard of our products, don't know anything? Um, and so that sort of try, I try to keep myself grounded in that way, um, effectively. That's really interesting. Two, two things just strike me with what you're saying that have cropped up before with some, um, people are really respecting marketing. One was your point about, um, you've got tight control of the project and, um, someone said on the podcast that committees kill good marketing and uh, that always stuck with me actually um and uh, i've kind of seen it in decision making process in other areas as well like you want you want insight and input don't you you don't want egos to run the show but equally it's not a democracy is it it's marketing you know we're not here yeah. you know, trying to make everybody happy we're here trying to make something that's really good and sells so that's, that's really interesting kind of combining that sort of almost like tuning down your ego but also maintaining a strong sense of control and direction so that you don't just get swallowed by what is a fantastic legacy but also you want to build on it don't you just not sort of live in the past yeah i think that's a really good point i, I would build on it by saying a lot of that is is down to the marketeer to manage that because yes. whatever business you work in there will be layers that you have to work through different areas that you have to um have to construct consult with or they might even put internal customers as it were yeah and so um it's certainly something i learned over the last sort of couple of years uh at hall and woodhouse because it's a different business to where i've been before it's a vertically integrated manufacturing business with this whole hospitality side as well so there's a lot of different areas that need to be involved and they need to be taken on that journey and it's up to us as marketeers to take people through that so that when you are saying this is how it should be, even if they, you know, on some some emotional level disagree, they can they can see that the you know the insight that's gone into it, how that's turned into your positioning, and how you work that through um, to the final sort of activation, and can therefore you know rationalise why it's the right thing to do and why you should you should continue. Um, so yeah, there's a bit of both. It'd be lovely just to be a dictator and do whatever you want. But I think that there's danger in that as well, because of course you become yeah more too isolated. Um, and you know, great ideas can sometimes come from anywhere. Yeah. 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 No, that's really, that's great. nuanced advice. Thank you. Um, just something that I wanted to pick up on. Um, I don't know actually whether this is related to the whole of the Badger beers portfolio or just to outland or just to the core range in ales, but that line, this badger is anything but black and white. That tagline, it's very, uh, I don't know, it's, it's really um, evocative. It just makes you yeah. straight away. I'm like, I think loads of kind of ideas spinning off it. Like, what's that tagline all about? What does it sort of symbolize for you? And why did it become important in the kind of the rebrand and the new brand project that you've been doing? Yeah, I think that comes back to a lot of the, um, the key insights that came out of the research, which really, to boil it down, and this is true for badger, but actually all of, all of, of premium bottled ale, is that consumers saw it as a bit old-fashioned, a bit dusty. The bay looks like a sea of brown bottles. Um, they're quite hard to decipher. People don't know what's in the bottle. They don't get a sense of what things are going to taste like. And all of those things are the opposite of what craft beer has done in many ways. Um, and what that craft beer done, has done is therefore put the, the PBA to sharp perspective. People are like, oh, it doesn't have to be like this. I am, you know, I could have, you know, vibrancy and colours and, um, you know, decent descriptions and and whatever it might be. Um, so if you run that through to the anything but black and white piece, what we've tried to do with the refresh is be 
more contemporary. You know, we're not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, we've got 246 years of, of history um, and we have a loyal following that we don't, you know, want to uh, alienate. But having said that, we can't sell more beer to a small group of people. It's all about driving that penetration. And that means being um, interesting to you know, a broader suite of, of, of people. And by what what we tried to do with the uh, this badge is anything but black and white, it leans into the fact that we actually make quite an interesting range of beers for PBA. We're quite innovative. You know, we have our, our Blanford Fly, which is a, a, a ginger flavored ale, which is, you know, award winning. And Golden Glory, which is peach flavored. Um, and that's been around for, for 20 years, you know, way before this current sort of peach boom that we're seeing. Um, whether it's, you know, Cramble Poacher, which is sort of damson and licorice. You know, these are really kind of interesting and different flavors. The kind of thing that you see in the, in the craft sector, really. But I don't think that that message really got out to consumers because the, the packaging uh, didn't sort of really highlight what the, what the flavors were. You've got seconds to attract someone in aisle. Everything's always on a four for seven. Uh, and so people are picking from all over the place. And, and beer drinkers are really promiscuous, particularly in ale. They like to try <laughs> lots of different things. Um, Shoppers are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, and so, so you know, you don't have much time or much ability to, to catch their, um, their imagination. And so we wanted to lean into the fact that we actually have this range of really interesting beers. We don't just make an amber beer. Uh, gold, you know the, the sort of standard ones um because that's what differentiates us we think from from the competition is actually you know that innovation um and that interest um because frankly you know you doom bars and hostels have, have got those sort of standard subcategories in a bit of a chokehold that you know they're huge and it's going to be it's very hard to to compete with them so looking for that point of differentiation you know we lean into the portfolio of more interesting beers yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. My, uh, I've got I've got massively fond memories of uh, all the Badger Brands because I discovered them when I was uh, studying archaeology about twelve, thirteen years ago. We were sort of um, just camping in in Wiltshire. It was like no showers, just like a soda shower in the morning, and we're like eating the bar every night. And um, I think like, the lad that was doing catering just went to a bottle shop, and um, I remember at the time it, it it was really innovative. Not many people were doing it. It was like a keg in a box. So you just like you just tap it and all and it, and and he just got loads and loads of, of badger beer and yeah. it, the thirsty ferret just went down like an absolute tree. But even at the time, I remember thinking, oh, actually, the the cartoons like the the animals were really different because it was even more stodgy then. And we were all yeah. like archaeologists, so like a lot of us were like into the real air and stuff like that. But I remember after that, we were then looking for it up in York, and I kind of like followed it ever since. So it's really really interesting for me. So it's like they've for a long time to kind of see it emerging as well. But the the Outland brands, just tell us a bit about that because the the artwork on the cans is beautiful. It's subtle, it's evocative. It really kind of speaks to the place that the beer yeah. from. So it just gives a window into like how you arrived at the brand image. And I think as well, just as a consumer drinker, I'd say it's quite brave as well to move away from that edgy hipster vibe. That lots of it's still very fresh and current, but it, it doesn't look like it's trying to be another copycat. You know, um, Hackney Wick. Yeah, yeah, you know, brewing brand. It's not like jumping on the bag. Well, what kind of what led you to make that decision around the just the artwork and the packaging, the presentation? Yeah, I mean it, that's the second prong that came out of the the insight piece. One was, like I say, trying to sort of um, refresh and support our, our core business, but also you know move into this new area um, where we're obviously we're seeing some some growth. 
Um, but we wanted to be honest about it. A couple of more mainstream brewers have come out with craft products. In fact, before I was here, we've had a couple of little stabs at it, but at a sort of single product level. And it's, the way I looked at it is like, you know, you need credibility and you need to be honest. Um, now we have credibility because actually we've got 246 years of history. We're still fully independent, unlike quite a few of the big craft guys I should point out um and we wanted to we wanted to build on that and then and then be honest as well because really if you look at who's buying craft beer in the supermarkets I know everyone has this sort of picture of you know the classic bearded sort of hipster tattoos and, and all of that I've we even had a slide in our positioning that said this is not our target because that is a very small vocal minority now, they're really important to the, the category. They're driving a lot of innovation through the microbreweries and all of that, but they're not buying in Tesco on a Saturday. The person buying in Tesco on a Saturday is 40-plus, a little bit more wealthy. They've got a couple of kids. Um, they still like going to festivals, but now it's, uh, you know, pub in the park rather yeah. than um, <laughs> festival. And and so, because it's an expensive product, and so, you know, it, it does appeal to that sort of middle-aged, mostly male um, sort of demographic. And so once you get your head around that and put aside the sort of preconception that, you know, it has to be for this person that, you know, brews their own beer in a bathtub under some railway arches somewhere, then then you can begin to think of it just like a normal product. And what we knew about these consumers is a bit like PBA, they're, they're looking to come into the category, but they find it a little bit overwhelming. You know, they're worried that they're going to have seven, eight percent beers that taste of, you know, coconut and old coffee or whatever it might be and so yeah so, so we knew this and we know that people are switching from pba to craft we know that people upgrade from lager to craft as they're looking for something a little bit more interesting um and so we just wanted to make it really really clear it was just about clarity of communication based on you know the honesty of this this new positioning and so if you look at the cans um they're really, really straightforward in their messaging. You've got the brand name on the top, Outland. Actually, I've got one here. Um, I don't know if you can see, but you've got the the name yeah. of the product just there. It's not got some sort of kooky name. It says Hazy IPA. So at a glance, in an aisle, you can see there's Hazy IPA. Under that, you've got three descriptors of what it tastes, of, tastes like, hazy, juicy, citrusy. And under that, you've got the ABV. It's all the basic information that a shopper or a consumer needs. And it's designed with the supermarket in mind and that intense shopping experience where there's a toddler hanging off your leg you're running out of parking you're drenched in the rain you just want to get it done um, and to make it really really easy and again you'll see in the range the range each one has a different color for the circle and a different black and white pattern here which harks back to to nature because obviously we're from dorset and that means that you know the whole range is easily identifiable together and that should, you know, just help people make that decision. And I talked about the shopper and the consumer there. And again, that's an important thing to consider because very often the shopper isn't the consumer. Yeah, yeah. And and so one of the interesting things that came out of some of the research we did was um, the shoppers saying, if I've got on my list Peroni and I go into store and it's out of stock, I feel comfortable in um, substituting that for another Southern European lager. They, they can understand what that substitution is. For PBA and craft, they found that really, really difficult. 
so they would you know if something's out of stock what's the alternative you don't know because the packaging isn't that clear you have to pick them up and look at them and go is this amber is this golden what's the abv what do you like you know it's so it was trying to balance those two things um and create something memorable with you know the design cues of the category i.e the vibrant color etc but not you know not getting sucked into the you know the the design the design war because we would lose it's it's not our wheelhouse and that's fine um we would let those guys do it and they did an amazing job we're doing something slightly different and trying to be this sort of category entry point for for new consumers it's really interesting yeah yeah and it, it's it takes a like a clarity mindset to say do you know what that let's let's win our game in the tournament and not try and play every single game yeah sometimes you know speak to I speak to smaller companies that come through as a recruiter, and um, sometimes I will I'll turn away business because the rate might be good, they might be great people, but I just I listen to them talk about the proposition. I just think I can't sell this as an achievable objective for somebody to come in as a brand manager. It's just yeah. not going to buy. And I've said to people, well, look, I recommend you just get somebody more experienced who can consult it, and I recommend someone. Uh, and and it's amazing, like how often I think in marketing you can. You can start with a good idea, you start with insight, but then when you get into like onto shelf, you get into the battleground, you always just get like it's that rabbit in a headlight syndrome. You just get yeah. overwhelmed by the sheer amount of noise and, and opportunities to fight. It's like now you've got to really stick to your mission and stick, yeah. stick with a scrap that you know you can win that you want to win that you've trained for as well. Yeah. I think I think there's possibly a bit of ego there as well. Uh, yeah, as marketers, you know, we we want to do something cool, something exciting, yeah, something yeah. that looks great. But is that actually the right thing for our objectives and what we're trying to achieve? If you know, constant advertising in the racing post, you know, as a half page is the the best way to get to your consumers, then you should do that and not put it on TV because it's sexy mm-hmm. and it's interesting. It's a it's about taking a step back uh, and thinking about exactly what you're trying to. Uh, what you're trying to achieve and you know you, you talked about other brands there you know with the, the great curse of marketing courses when someone pops up and says um oh i've seen someone do this why don't we do that and of course the question to that is why you know it, it works for them i assume because they've designed it to meet their objectives these are our objectives does that however cool however interesting yeah yeah uh, a piece of activation or a, a a bit of work with a celebrity or whatever it is does that meet our objectives or is it just you've gone, oh, that's really cool. And it's about, yeah, stepping back and, and trying to think scientifically and, and without your ego, I think. What was the best seller of the new range of the Outlaw Beats? What's been the best seller for you? Um, in the So in our houses, in the on-trade, um, it's our West Coast IPA, which we're hoping to bring into Cannes next year. And again, that is a effectively a standard IPA. Um, it was a, a reworking of a, a, um, a brand we had before. Um, which didn't follow those sort of communication uh, hierarchy that we just talked about. And just by changing the the fisheye on the bar, we've seen about a 70% uplift wow. over the 12 wow. weeks. That's because, awesome. and again, it comes down to that piece where you're in a crowded bar, you look across, you can see the words IPA. Great, they've got an IPA and I'll order it. And the, the shopper versus consumer, we, you know, we sell mostly our own beers. So if a group of people come in, they send someone to the bar for a, a punk IPA or a um, you know gamma ray or whatever it might be, and we don't have it. How do they know what to swap it to? And again, it's really clear on the bar, and they can just go, "Oh, we asked for a punk IPA. That's an IPA. I'll get him one of them." 
it 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 sounds it's as with so much you know sort of good marketing dare i say it um it sounds very much like common sense but to get to that point a very simple simple common sense means cutting away a lot of other um other noise as it were um in cans we've got in the grocers we've got uh, a milk stout and a uh, hazy ginger ipa uh, now the reason we started with those are they're again a little bit little bit more niche flavors but it allowed us to get a toehold if we'd gone to the grocers with another ipa a year or so ago because uh, we were selling it in bef- before we'd even finished creating the brand it was a roller coaster sort of six months um they probably would have sent us away as it were because why do they need another ipa would be kind of the view um but what we're looking to do now is, is move to some of those sort of more more mainstream products so we've got the the hazy ipa i showed you earlier uh, a West Coast IPA. We've got a peach lager that um, has done so well over the summer in our houses and at we events. That like, oh, it was really good. Yeah, I loved it, and I really, I didn't think I would, it, you know. But um, I, I had one at, where we were at uh, Brew London earlier in the year, and um, I was like, "This is just great. It's so refreshing. A little bit different, but not too sweet, not too cloying." So yeah, trying to sort of move to that area, and um, uh, yeah dominate the category within the next 12 months perhaps nice no that's really cool um just thinking about your leadership then Giles, and it's been i mean there's been loads of great insights there on yeah just how to lead as a, as a marketeer uh from what you've said already but um just give us a snapshot into like a day in the life of what it's like to be in a, in a big role in an sme because um a lot of our audience are coming through yeah um and it's a question that we ask all the time is when is the right time to look at maybe going from a PG, like a monster, into a smaller business where I have a bit more fun, a little bit more freedom, but also it's a bit scary. There's no way to hide. Like, just give us a yeah. sense of like, just what it's like on, on the ground. Yeah, I think you, you have to be willing to get your hands dirty. And in a, in a, in a smaller business than P&G, P&G you know, you're not going to be able to sit on a little plinth and do your you know very sort of narrow piece of work. You have to be you know quite broad. And um, that's fine. Um, I don't mind... I don't mind doing that. I think the, the the great advantage of being somewhere like this is that you're not just a, a small cog in a massive machine. You can make you know real sort of change. You know, if I was at Molson Coors, would I have created, obviously with everybody else, a new craft beer brand this year and refreshed a 246-year-old brand? No, absolutely not. Uh, it would have been done by multiple committees globally, over the period of two years, and I would have been one tiny part of that. So you know, that's an incredible opportunity, and that's what I think working in an SME or something like that that gives you. Um, what does the day look like? It could be everything from working with the brewery team on new beers, uh, or discussing where we want to go next, to uh, working with distribution and logistics on our sort of uh, in-house activation and POS with the pub marketing team to trying to carve out a couple of hours to do the sort of bigger, more sort of strategic pieces where it's planning season at the moment, for example. Um, so it really is a bit of a bit of everything and you need to be quite adaptable, I think, uh, and have a sort of a broad range of, of, of skills, I suppose. Um, but I think that's true of a lot of marketing. It's it's a very broad church unless you're in a very big business and you're, and you're very specialised. Um, so, yeah, being able to... To, to do that is is, is really important. That's very interesting. Just, just kind of building on that, like um, any advice for people coming through that are looking to sharpen the character attributes, the attitudes 
Um, and also with that in mind, following on from that, skills as well. Like what what character attributes and skills do you think are really key in marketing at the moment that people need to really deliver as a basic to kind of set themselves up to succeed in FMCG? Yeah, I think marketing as a whole is 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 on a on a journey. If we're honest, a lot of people end up in marketing not necessarily because they chose it from eighteen. They sort of fall into it or they think it'll be interesting or or sort of more fun as it were. But it needs to be more, almost more professional. We need to justify ourselves. Say when we're going to stand in front of the management committee, the board, whatever it is, saying I need X amount of money. We need to really be very clear on why we need that money and what it's going to achieve. We need to hold ourselves to account both in the planning, tracking and in review at the end so that we can show the value from the investment because it's not always immediate. You know, an investment in the in the, in the sales team and price, whatever it is, will drive certain volume, will drive certain commercials. It's it's there, it's black and white on paper. But brand building, particularly, is a three, five, seven year project. Are um, is a board going to wait seven years to get some sort of, you know, some sort of reply and and, and result? Uh, you know, considering we've had you know war in Europe, COVID, economic meltdown in just like the last four years. <laughs> You know, the, the chances <laughs> that at some point they're going to look at that marketing budget, which is often the easiest one to cut because, you know, there's no there's no sort of definitive, immediate, physical reaction to that. Um, and they will, unless you are, you know, justifying yourself with, you know, with some proper science and some proper data and some proper insight. Um, and always, as I said earlier, try and lean back, back on that. It's not, we are a, a, a creative area of the business, but really... We should be a strategic one. Um, the creativity is is kind of a small part. And I think a lot of broader businesses, you know, still kind of think of marketing as a bit of a, a service line that is just there to deliver things that areas of the business ask for or certain sort of creative, et cetera. But we're much more on that. You know, we should be helping to lead the business with those insights uh, and with that strategy. Um, that's not always easy because it means that you're sort of treading on the toes of other areas, you know, making suggestions to what this part of the business should do or, or that. But if you can put the consumer first, you can set out what you're saying in with some decent data, some decent insight and go into it impassionately and without ego, then you can set out a case that you can then build on from there. I think, I think that's really, really key. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, well, thanks so much for uh, being on the podcast, Giles. That is uh, oh, fantastic. Any um, kind of, I would just kind of end on it. Any any kind of books, resources you recommend that kind of would help people just dig into what you've outlined there as a kind of right skill set, mindset, ethos to sort of double down. Yeah, well, I dug some out actually, just for exactly this reason. So, you know, the, the perfect example of that is is Byron Sharp, How Brands Grow, which is yeah, you know, is is your classic, you know, data driven. Um, sort of, you know, marketing theory, and you know, um, him and the, the rest of the, the the institute down there in Australia doing you know great work in 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 turning sort of ideas and thoughts into you know sort of scientific models and, and laws, and I think that's really important. And the interesting thing about that is, having started my time in Dunhumby, which is all about loyalty uh, and you know retaining customers, and that's effectively the complete opposite. And it really kind of opened my eyes to that because I was, you know, I'm not saying I was brainwashed, but I was there from a young age. And so 
you know, you sort of absorb all of that. Um, so that was, that's a really good one. Um, again, uh, How Not to Plan by Les Burnett and, and Carter is, it's really easy to read. Um, each, each sort of chapter is a, is a single, a single issue. Um, and you know, you can pick it up and put it down and it's really good. Uh, and, uh, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, uh, by Richard Rumler. Again, it is a little bit deeper, but again, just really, really interesting. And I think the, the key to any of this you're saying for people coming up is you, you've got to keep learning. You've got to keep teaching yourself because the world moves. Um, and you know, there's some of the ideas within marketing change uh, and, and you need to be on top of them, uh, just to, to sound like, you know what you're talking about. If you go back to that piece, I say, we need to add credibility and justify ourselves. If you've got those examples, if you've got that language at your fingertips, you're going to be, you know, putting forward your strategy based on a much better, um, a much better set of data, a much better, you know, set of laws and models rather than you just going, I think we should do this because it'll reach this many people. It's, it's, it's just, I think it's about sort of professionalizing and, 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 you know, trying to be a bit more scientific about it all. Brilliant. No, thank you so much. Well, listen, uh, it's been an absolute yeah, pleasure just chatting and hearing yeah, about the story. And uh, yeah, I've learned those as well. And I'm sure anyone listening and watching has done. If you've um, enjoyed today, please make uh, just 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 make the effort to go reach out to Giles. And thank you for his time. Anyone that comes on our show does it because they want to invest in the industry, industry careers. And uh, also, more importantly, you know, go and try uh, the beers. Go and try the the um, the um, it was the, the milk stout and the the ginger um, yeah. and the ale, wasn't it? Um, so we'll go and check out Cool Brandon as well and uh, you know, give Jazz feedback on what you like it's always great when you hear from consumers and shoppers and uh, look thanks so much for listening we appreciate you putting the time in uh, supporting the show and we'll see you again soon take care thanks for watching the FMCG podcast click the playlist here to hear more great episodes you can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts just search the FMCG podcast to hear more great content see you soon